Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 123. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Spencer Huffman. Hello, I'm Spencer Huffman. And today, we're going to be discussing an assignment we actually had in a poetry class about a year ago, which covered Dickinsonian opposites. And our professor gave us a worksheet when we were studying Emily Dickinson and instructed us to find the opposites of words and phrases that she gave us, some of which came from Emily Dickinson's poetry. And I remember being really fascinated by that assignment because there were certain examples that didn't have clear opposites and it wasn't always straightforward. So our discussion today is actually going to involve worksheets that you and I made for one another, and it will definitely be a somewhat different discussion than perhaps listeners are used to. But before we get into that, I'd really like to know, looking back on that assignment, if you had similar feelings, or if to you it was just another assignment, do you remember any strong associations with it? I agree with you that it was a unexpectedly difficult process, and that there was sort of a lot of unexpected questions that arose because of the opposites that we were talking about. I found it particularly interesting that at some points, the opposite of one word would be very different from the opposite of a whole phrase. In other words, if you were trying to find the opposite of a phrase, it often didn't seem appropriate to just take the opposite of each individual word. And if you did, you often ended up with something that meant very much the same thing as the original phrase which I thought was really interesting. And it tells something about opposites and the way that they work in conjunction and on their own. I agree. And I would even argue that the assignment wasn't necessarily about how opposites work with one another, but how we as people conceive of and employ opposites in our language and our discussion, because I think that they are a very limited concept and do not often express the complexity of our feelings and our world and the things that we observe So to get into the assignment that you and I gave one another, I'd like to start with you and ask if there were any prompts I gave you, and I believe I gave you about 50 or 60, that struck you as interesting or particularly difficult, and if you would explain why that was the case. Your 19th suggestion, which was bank vault, and assessing the opposite of bank vault, it was challenging and it was sort of an interesting process because my instinct was to sort of to find some unsafe place, some place that was not secure, like a bank vault is secure. Then I reassessed from there and was thinking about wide open spaces, because if there's something that a bank vault is not, it is not a wide open space. It is very closed and it is locked. It is not wide open in many senses of the word. I ended up saying what I put down was a park playground, because that is also a place where children spend a lot of time running around in the open, where if you left something that you meant to leave in a bank vault, it would be surely touched and um, moved and not necessarily returned because kids don't have the same sort of moral compass as adults do, as most adults do when they find something valuable, they'll try to find its owner. And I really like that opposite because I would often think of a bank vault as containing something inorganic or non-living in most senses of the word, whereas a playground is usually full of life, whether it's children or their parents, maybe a family pet that's roaming around as well, and there are trees and other plants around, so I really appreciate that comparison. And to me, what's at the crux of this assignment, or in general, finding an opposite, is discerning the identifying characteristic of an item or a concept 
And for me, that is something very limiting about opposites because we might find different identifying factors in any given idea or item. For example, you gave me some very interesting ones. And to the audience listening, we will share these on the podcast episode if you'd like to try this out for yourself. One of yours for me was good taste. And the opposite I came up with was amateur traveler. And to me, that was an opposite, not necessarily in a grammatical sense, because one can't have an amateur traveler as a quality of theirs. But I think the opposite of having good taste, which I would say is a result of experience and encountering new ideas and new concepts, is someone who has not encountered very many new ideas or new concepts. But I imagine that you might have had a different idea in mind when you thought of good taste. Or if you didn't, I would really like to know now, what do you think the opposite of good taste is if you had to throw out a guess? Well, that's interesting that good taste presented that problem for you. I'm especially interested in the idea of an amateur traveler being sort of the beginnings of good taste, right? If the person is traveling, then they're sort of moving towards good taste, I suppose. And that's a really interesting way to think about opposites that we don't usually think about opposites. Opposites would usually be considered to have this polar separation that will never come together in the way that you suggest amateur traveler might eventually sort of end up after having traveled as a person with good taste. Actually, with that one, what I had in mind was bad taste, which is is so interesting about this because I think we'll probably find that some of yours are like that too, that I was sort of troubled by some aspect of the opposite or I was provoked by some aspect of the process of finding the opposite that led me in sort of the unobvious direction, if you will. But yeah, for that one, I thought it would be an interesting one to think about, but I would have put bad taste which I very much appreciate. And to tackle a few more of these more substantially, would you give me a handful of your favorites and of course their opposites and then I'll do the same? Sure. So here are a few interesting ones that you gave me. Number two, which is falling. And I put digging actually, because for a moment I was thinking the opposite of falling is probably something like flying. But then I started thinking about it, and I imagine that the sensation of flying has many similarities with the sensation of falling. If we're talking about falling in terms of falling in our earth, falling down from the sky, as opposed to some sort of more metaphorical, symbolic use of falling, which probably a whole other discussion to do with opposites. So then I thought, what is slow and what requires an effort that falling does not require, what requires sort of getting dirty in a way that you don't need to when you're just falling through the clean air, and what also is rarely sort of associated with danger. I think to fall is sort of something that may well be dangerous, while digging is slow and safe and not at all sort of associated with freedom in the way that falling often is. And number three, which is atheist. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the opposite of an atheist was. I ended up settling on religious, which was sort of the obvious choice. But I struggled with that for a long time because it didn't seem exactly what I wanted to say about the opposite of atheist, because it seemed to sort of simplify both sects. It seemed to simplify the atheist, and it seemed to simplify the religious person in this way that I wasn't sort of totally comfortable with which I think is, again, a shortcoming of opposites, as you've mentioned several times. Just in terms of practicality, I couldn't find anything reasonable other than religious. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that, actually. 
So it's interesting that you took it as an adjective because that's another fascinating thing about me giving you opposites with no other context. I thought of atheist as a noun in that context and thought about what the opposite of an atheist might be. And for me, it might be a believer. Although again, as you've said, and I agree, there is a lot of simplicity in opposites. But that is what I was thinking about when I gave you that prompt. And I actually did think about believer for a long while, but then it occurred to me that a believer has a connotation. The connotation is that they believe in God or they believe in some higher being. But an atheist believes things just in the way that anyone believes things. That's where this exercise puts my head as I end up in this sort of hyper analysis mode where I stop taking things for granted. So yeah, I sort of felt myself hesitant to commit to believer because it suddenly, for me, only in the process of this worksheet, meant much more than it usually does. You gave me time, and I put sleep, and you gave me employment, and I put idle. You gave me pancake, which I thought was wonderful, very funny, and difficult too. What is the opposite of a pancake? And I put a piece of wood. (laughs) I'm not sure if I need to explain that because I think the opposite of a pancake is going to be different for everyone, and it's probably very hard for anyone to explain. (laughs) But yes, a piece of wood just seemed like the opposite of a pancake to me. You gave me an explosion in the distance, and I put a whisper in the quiet. I think a very interesting part of that one is distance and the conversion to quiet there, because for me, there is a suggestion in distance of also space for sound. I had toyed with saying a whisper in the close or something like that, or a whisper in the near, but then I thought it was actually sort of more accurate to say a whisper in the quiet because of the way we understand space and sound and that larger space has sort of more room for sound and is filled with sound, even if it's quite quiet. It sort of has potential energy that a small space doesn't. So you gave me tracing your heritage. This is number 41. And I put guiding your moment. You gave me this must be the end. And I put this is not the end. I like that. So to give a few of yours that I really enjoyed, you gave me church and I said state which isn't necessarily the opposite, but in our political rhetoric, at least in America, we often hear about the separation of church and state. You gave me clam, which I thought of as something that was closed and small, so I wrote tree, because I think in many ways there are oppositional qualities in a tree. Very intriguingly, you gave me fall, and I had given you falling, and I was not as creative and indeed wrote fly. You gave me tongue, I said microphone something that records sound, whereas a tongue helps to make sound. Although I also could have thought about the tongue as something which is necessary to taste. So again, it's about what you see in the object or concept you're trying to find the opposite of. You gave me green, and I looked up the color wheel and found that magenta is directly opposite it, but that does not mean that magenta is its opposite for everyone. Someone might say red is the opposite of green or orange which scientifically or artistically may not be agreed upon, but I also think opposites can take on a personal quality. I also think with colors, this question is especially interesting because people so often associate emotions with colors in this very direct way that we don't do with other sort of inanimate things, right? When I think of a towel, I do not have an emotive response usually. But if I think of purple, I do sort of have this small emotive response. So then the question becomes, 
in forming your opposite? Are you responding to the connotations and emotive elements of the color? Or are you approaching it more like you did, which was to find the literal opposite of the color? Exactly. And I remember thinking a lot about what I should write down. And I ultimately settled on that. You gave me makeup number 28. And I said, magnifying glass. And that's because the first thing that came to mind with makeup is something that obscures or hides. But that might be a very cynical view of makeup because I know many people who would describe it as far more artistic and more painterly than I might originally observe. And so I could have found the opposite of something artistic or paint-like instead of a magnifying glass, which is something that reveals, at least in my mind. You gave me calluses. And I wrote laborless because I think calluses are something that you accrue through often hard work, although in our modern world, there's plenty of quote unquote lighter work that doesn't require much physical exertion or scraping that might lead to callousing. But then you gave me calloused feet later on and I wrote smooth hands because I think those two words are the opposite words of the two that you gave me, which returns to the idea that you had mentioned earlier about phrases and how if you oppose every word in a phrase, you might come to a very similar meaning. But in this case, I don't actually think that smooth hands have a similar meaning to calloused feet. I think they are quite different. I'm particularly interested in what you did with those because I consciously tried to give single words that I would then put into small phrases. So I'd be interested in hearing, do you have one more of those? And also just like the thought process behind forming the phrase as opposed to the single word. I definitely do. And I think it might be a fitting end to use your last prompt for me, which was number 50, I'm all out of tools. And I wrote, my breath is new. Because I think in many ways, a tool is something that allows you to do something. It permits action in the same way that breath permits physical or bodily action and also any other action that a living organism might engage in because we need energy. And I know that not every organism breathes in a very strict sense of the word, but the idea of what breath allows for this material that's all around us that we can take in and draw energy from and the idea of being out of tools, being at the end of a line to me is the opposite of something that is new. Thus, I wrote, my breath is new. And that brings up a really interesting connotation of new to do with volume. The suggestion in your opposite is that new breath connotes more breath to come, right? That you are not at all close to running out of breath in the way that I am out of tools. New breath suggests more to come, which is really interesting because new in itself doesn't mean that new can be a one-time thing. It can be one and done. But when put in the context of this opposite, it takes on this whole much broader meaning to do with volume and quantity. And having discussed some of our prompts, I'd actually like to move to what this assignment prompted me to think about and why I wanted to have a podcast of this nature with you, because I've often found people are attracted to simplicity. We prefer what is easier to compartmentalize, to think about, to feel towards in the people we know, in the places we go, in the entertainment we often enjoy. I think there are signs that we prefer simplicity. Although with entertainment, I think there's also a trend towards complexity that certain people appreciate. But our society, especially in children, which is where I'd like to take this, instills ideas of very clear opposites. We ask our children what the opposite of hot is, and we teach them that it's cold. We ask what the opposite of tall is, and a child will repeat short because we've taught them that. 
And I wouldn't say that there are no opposites in our universe or that the concept is defunct and useless, but I do think, especially instilling certain ideas, whether it's in a child or any other person, causes us to narrow our approach to the world in many ways. We start to look for opposites or deny the gray area and nuance that exists all around us. For example, many people might say the opposite of love is hate. But if you think about the quality of love that compels us to think about another person over and over again continuously, hatred shares a very similar quality in that we often think about that person, albeit with a very negative tone. And I would argue that the opposite of love is in many ways apathy, where you don't feel anything at all, because love to me can also be described as strong feeling, but not necessarily focused on that specific example. What do you think about this idea of preferred simplicity? Do you also see a similar trend in society? And do you think that it's one we shouldn't worry about? Do you think there are ways we could adjust our approach to describing the world? Well, yes, I do agree with you that there's a tending towards simplicity. And I wonder how much it has to do with practicality and how much it has to do with sort of a conscious dumbing down, in quotes, if you will. I guess what I think is that if we understood language in this hyper-analytical way that you have to do when you're trying to find opposites of things that don't really have opposites, or at least don't have opposites that are very obvious, then language begins to break down. It becomes so nuanced and complicated that you can't really say anything specific anymore, that everything you say will mean a thousand different things. And if we really committed to that, I think there would be quite a lot of confusion. But that isn't to suggest that there aren't times when we do oversimplify in sort of an irresponsible way, in a way that is not just in the pursuit of practicality and understanding, but is in the pursuit of obscuring or lying, I guess, or telling untruths about the way that the world is. And I think that in those instances, we should pursue a similar line of thought as you and I have today with the opposites in terms of paying the appropriate amount of attention to language and the way that we use it, the way that it suggests and implies. I think that attention is absolutely key because there are spaces of conflict, such as wars, arguments, or debates, where we think that those on the other side of the line are necessarily our opposites because of the nature of that encounter, which is an understandable mode of thought. But To say that during the Crusades and even somewhat in our modern era that the opposite of a Christian is a Muslim because they are engaged in warfare denies their shared religious roots and experiences and at the end of the day shared beliefs that they might have or to look at a political sphere and say in our country the opposite of a Republican is a Democrat denies certain shared beliefs in a democratic government and in various other political feelings that individuals might have. Do you think those are fitting analogies? Yes, I do. And I think that those are circumstances in which we don't pay enough attention to the language we use and in which we should. I think especially for the average American in terms of the comparison between a Republican and a Democrat. We so often talk about Republicans as a type and a group of people and Democrats as a type and a group of people, as if one person can be a Democrat or be a Republican in the same way that you can be from Oregon or be from wherever else in the world. Being a Democrat 
what we mean when we say that, or what we should mean when we say that, is that in general, they hold views which are roughly in line with the Democratic Party, which is the more liberal party in the United States. And the same thing with Republicans. But there's a polarization that happens by assigning people identities based on which party they've sort of generally voted for, which is a huge mistake. It doesn't make any sense. And it encourages this kind of polarizing thought, which plagues the political system from top to bottom and is a problem on both sides of the aisle equally, that there's an unwillingness to accept sameness and to accept the many points of commonality as opposed to draw out and sort of tear apart the points of disagreement. Those examples are exactly the kind of examples that I would have brought up to talk about when opposites are very important to pay attention to and what our language really means when we're talking about quote-unquote opposites. And before we close the episode, what are some things you would like the audience to consider, perhaps thinking questions after listening to this conversation of ours? I would say that for someone listening to this, an interesting thing to do in your everyday life would be to start paying attention, even if it's only for five minutes a day, to what you're saying and what the opposite might be and sort of making yourself available to that sort of hyper attention and all the connotations that come with it and perhaps the impracticality because it will reveal moments when we are perhaps oversimplifying and not giving enough attention to the words we use in the contexts that we use them. I agree. And I know we have some listeners who are parents, and I would encourage you to think about how you've taught your children about opposites or may currently be teaching them about the oppositional world that you believe exists. And that's not to say I don't think opposites exist, but as I hope this discussion has illustrated, I do feel that we apply opposites somewhat arbitrarily in our use of language and our conception of the world. And furthermore, I would encourage listeners to try this exercise, write up a list of concepts, ideas, or items, and ask friends of yours if they can find their opposites. And Spencer, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on. It was great to discuss this with you. Thank you very much, Kip. But of course, ours are only two voices, and we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have thoughts, feedback, or opinions of any kind, please reach out to us. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to and reviewing the show, as well as sharing it with someone you think might also enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.